If you would, turn to Ephesians, sorry, Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30 is our passage this morning. So coming out of a time of prayer, I can't help but remember this. Uh, as you're turning to Philippians, I, I came across a story I was reading in a book about, I don't, remember, I don't know how long ago this took place, but about a church and about a tavern that opened right next to a church. And, of course, Saturday nights, it got pretty rowdy there, and even, even the next morning as the saints were gathering at this particular church, it was pretty rowdy. And the church would pray that God would intervene, that God would do something, and God did. A tornado swept through the town and totally destroyed the tavern, and the church was totally intact, like it hadn't been touched. And the tavern owner actually brought the church to court on a lawsuit. And the judge actually thought it was unbelievable that, uh, that this particular unbeliever, who was the owner of the town, believed so much in the power of prayer that he would take the church to court. <laughs> but I say that because coming off of a time of prayer, just how encouraging it is to pray, to remember that we pray to a God who is sovereign, who is omnipotent, who is in control of all things. He certainly can do anything. And that's the God that we pray to. So Philippians chapter 1, pick it up in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you may help us this morning to come to your word in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. That we would listen, that we would be attentive, that we would be humble, Lord, to receive your word and do what it commands. I pray, God, that you may be with me and that you may help me to preach in a manner worthy of the gospel with humility, with the anointing of your Spirit, and with every intention in my own heart to follow through in what your word commands of me as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a while since we've been coming back to those since we've been at Philippians after spending some time on, with Palm Sunday and Easter. And last week we took an aside and talked about the topic of joy, which is a big theme in the book of Philippians. So now that we're back into our series through the letter of Paul to the Philippians, let me just kind of give a quick recap just to remind us of what kind of what we've covered so far. So in chapter 1, verses 2 to 11, we see some strong language in the, on the words of Paul on behalf of, his, of, of the letter of the uh, Philippians. And these are words of affection. These are words of love. There's a, a great relationship there between the Apostle Paul and this church. I mean, he says that he yearns for them with the, with the affection of Christ. 
And that particular section concludes with an exhortation, what I would call an exhortation to live the superior life. That is a life, as the passage would define as, a life filled with the fruit of righteousness. All to the glory and praise of God. A life abounding with love, filled with knowledge and discernment. And then following that, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, we see Paul's joy in the gospel, specifically in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's encouraged that even while he's in prison, there are some brothers who are encouraged and even become more emboldened to preach the gospel. And that there are others who are preaching the gospel from selfish ambition. And the city of Philippi is filled with residents who greatly value the, the superior titles, the, the prestigious positions, and that perhaps maybe these particular individuals who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ did so out of a way to kind of advance their own ends while Paul is in prison. And then Paul continues in that same joy in verses 18 to 26, where he's talking about his joy in Christ. There's, and he talks about his own life, that whether it's in life or whether it's in death, that his great ambition is that, that Christ would be honored in his life. And then we come to that famous statement in Philippians where he says that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those words come from a man who is possessed by Christ, whose life is filled up, is bound up with Christ, who is motivated, who's driven by Jesus Christ. And that should be our desire as well, that we would be so possessed by Christ that everything we do would be ultimately to the, to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And then he concludes that section by expressing a concern for the church's progress and also a concern for their joy in the faith. So then we come to verse 27, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what comes next, and even goes all the way down into chapter 2 and to the, to the middle of chapter 2, all falls under this heading, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in other words, what Paul is telling us here, what he's trying to encourage us to do is to live out our heavenly citizenship. And he'll go on to explain what that means. What does that look like? Right, proof of citizenship in different countries looks differently. Right, For us, it's having perhaps a U.S. passport, birth certificate, all these different documents that prove that we are citizens of this country. But what is the proof of your heavenly citizenship, right, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? And so we want to see what are some of those documents of one's proof of their heavenly citizenship. And there's one particular proof of citizenship that's kind of interesting and might even surprise you. So let's talk about this heavenly citizenship and what does it mean to live it out. So it says, to stand firm together in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So for now, let me just skip over the first part of chapter 27. I'll come back to that to the end. But Paul's exhortation here is that the church would stand firm. Essentially, Paul's call is for the church to remain in unity to strive for unity in one spirit and one mind. I don't think he means spirit here as in like Holy Spirit, but I think he just means it's kind of a synonymous with the mind. So in other words, 
with your heart and soul. You should be striving for unity in the faith. Standing firm with one another. It's a call to be absolutely convinced to how essential it is for the church to be united. And by the way, this is a, an exhortation or a command given to the church collectively as a whole. Not to individual Christians, though it is important for each and every one of us as followers of Christ to be convinced of the importance of unity, but the command is given collectively to the church. Now, keep that in mind as we continue to move through the passage. So we have to be absolutely convinced that unity is essential, and this calling of being in one spirit and one mind, calling for your very being to be convinced of how essential it is, it's also a call to be convinced that this is important, because you can be convinced, or rather, you can be, it's, a, it's, a, it's a call to care about it. Because you can be convinced that something is good, that something is right, but not care enough to do anything about it. You can be convinced that having veggies each day is good for you, but you may not care enough to actually do it, which is my case. But I am working on it, so please pray with me. But it is, it's a call to be convinced and to care enough to do something about it. And if you don't see unity as essential to the body of Christ, if you don't care about it, then you are already being divisive. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Same as here in Philippians. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christ has saved us. Christ died on the cross for our sins, and through Jesus Christ, through our faith in him, we are united to God in Jesus Christ. We are united to Jesus Christ by faith in him, and not only that, but we are also united to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul says, the scripture says, that you have to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And of course, right, we trust in the sovereign protection of the Lord. Right, we just saying that He will hold us fast. I don't know about you, but my, I mean, my eyes water every time I sing that song. It's a wonderful truth. We trust in the sovereign protection of the Lord God over His church, over our personal life, that He will, in fact, hold us fast, that we will endure to the end because He has, is keeping us. But let's also not forget the message that we read in the New Testament, that we are also called to strive one and with, together with one another and endure to the end. Which means that we each bear a personal responsibility for maintaining the unity and for endurance. And so as we are maintaining this unity, where we are called to stand firm now, what does Paul mean by the word, by standing firm? In every case in the New Testament, to stand firm is directly related to the faith. To stand firm is to hold on to the faith without wavering. It's to be convinced that this is the truth and to care enough to stand in that truth. It is not only to have your feet firmly planted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's to have your feet cemented in the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Fully committed to it. It's like a soldier who refuses to leave his post, even though he's surrounded by enemies. When the German reformer Martin Luther right, put up the 95 Theses and was called by the Catholic church leaders to the Diet of Worms and called to recant his beliefs, which essentially was a call to recant the biblical faith as it's described to us in the scriptures. He responds by saying, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. To be standing firm in the gospel is to be convinced, as he would say, convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, bound by the scriptures, having your conscience captive to the word of God. Seems to me what he's describing there is not somebody who possesses the scriptures, but somebody who, who is possessed by the scriptures. It's not that so much that he's taking hold of the scriptures, but it's that the scriptures are taking hold of him. And so it should be for us as well that the scriptures have so captivated us, so bound us, that even if we try hard to wrestle it out, it will not let us go. And one of the reasons for Paul's exhortation for the church to stand together is because it is much easier to stand together with others than it is to stand alone. But it's much better, much more effective to storm a castle with a legion of soldiers than with just one man. The Lord did not say that upon this rock I have built my Christian. The Lord said, upon this rock I have built my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Hell will certainly have a greater chance of success toppling over one Christian than a body of believers. But the promise of the scriptures is that hell actually cannot prevail against the church. Now, I also firmly believe that the scriptures teach the perseverance of the saints, that those who genuinely believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will endure to the end because Jesus will make sure that they endure to the end. The scriptures certainly do teach that, but we also learn in the scriptures from the Old to the New Testament that God normally uses means to accomplish his purposes. And one of those means of your enduring to the end is brothers and sisters, is having others to lock arms with to help strive for the gospel and endure to the end. So we stand a greater chance of survival and endurance when we stand together, especially because we have this anti-trinity working against us. The Bible says it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
they're certainly much greater than we are, but the scriptures also tell us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. God has promised to persevere his church to the very end. Right, so we have, and we have the Holy Trinity. We've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Greater than the world and the flesh and the devil. Not only that, but we also have one another. To strive together side by side for the gospel, to help one another to endure to the end. So a call to strive side by side. The idea here is to contend, to struggle alongside with somebody. Jude writes something similar. He tells us to, to, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the same idea that Paul is thinking of when he writes in chapter 4, in verse 2 of Philippians. He says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. It's the same idea. In the recent past, Paul had these two women working with him side by side, striving together for the, for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, most likely the reason why he's, he's pressing this point of unity is because he's trying, he knows that there is some disunity in God's church, particularly among these two women who probably had followers. The Lord cares a great deal about the unity of the church, in part because the spread of the gospel is much more effective when there is unity. And unity, the scriptures teach us, is an apologetic to the world of the mission of Christ, and it is also a display of the world of God's love for us. In John 17, in Jesus' prayer, John 17, 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The reason why we want to have unity is because it shows the world that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners. The reason why we want to strive together for unity is because it is a manifestation of the love of God for his people. An unbeliever who comes into the church may not immediately recognize, oh, wow, this is the love of God. But what's the alternative? If they come into the church and see nothing but factions and disunity and arguments, they will certainly come to the conclusion they don't practice what they believe. There is no God here. This is, this is atheism in practice. But when we maintain unity with one another, it shows that God does indeed love us. It 
and maintaining unity is, one of the some of the practical ways of maintaining unity, this is some of the things that I try to emphasize when somebody comes into membership, but striving for unity or maintaining unity or protecting unity is, for example, not being divisive. It's not slandering others. It's not spreading gossip about others. It's following the one another commands that we see in the scriptures to love one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, reconcile with one another. Those are tangible ways of maintaining and striving and protecting unity. And also it's living a life of consistent holiness. Right? I did not say perfect holiness, but consistent holiness. That is living a manner worthy of the gospel, showing that you truly believe what you believe. Right? Because if somebody out there, whether it's your neighbor or coworker, knows that you're a Christian and knows, hey, that they, you also go to Seacoast Community Church, but they also see that you are living a sinful life, a life that looks no different than that person or looks no different than the rest of the world, not only that it hurts the testimony of that person, but it hurts the testimony of all of us. And so we are to strive together side by side for the gospel and not frightened by our opponents. Now, who are these opponents that Paul's referring to? These opponents is the rest of the world. It's the pagan world. It's the world of darkness as the book of John describes. Paul addresses different crowds here in his letter to the Philippians. He addresses those who preach from selfish ambition, but still preaching the gospel. So most likely they are not the ones who are persecuting the church because they're still Christians. Christians don't persecute Christians, at least not genuine Christians anyway. Paul also addresses later in the letter false teachers whom he calls dogs. They don't preach the biblical gospel. They preach a deviation of the gospel, but most likely persecution is not going to come from those who preach a false gospel. But normally, persecution comes from the rest of the world. And so in our striving together side by side, standing firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ought not to be frightened by the rest of the world and what the world can do to us. That doesn't mean that you're never scared. It doesn't mean that you're never afraid. But the point is that you're never afraid enough to make shipwreck of your faith. That you're never scared enough to just let go and abandon the faith. Forget about this. Forget about Christ. Forget about the Lord. But the church is not to be like horses that when scared or startled, they really run and flee. Oppressive to the Christian because fear can cause you to compromise your convictions. Fear will try to persuade you to rationalize disobedience to the Word of God. Fear will tempt you to find ways to excuse immorality. Fear will convince you to think that, of the, that avoiding telling the truth to somebody is actually the most loving thing you can do. But because fear is an oppressive and dangerous enemy is the reason why we have to stand together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because it is far easier to be courageous together than it is to be courageous by yourself. So then this leads to the next point. 
So we're thinking about heavenly citizenship. This heavenly citizenship is worked out when we are standing firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we are striving side by side, working together, pursuing unity with one another. And this citizenship is also lived out when Christians suffer for the gospel. So verse 28 and 30 says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that's from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul says this is a clear sign to them, that is to the world of their destruction. What sign exactly is he pointing to? The sign that he's pointing to is the faithfulness of the church. The sign that he's pointing to is the church's persecution on account of their faith. That this is a clear sign to their opponents of their destruction. We read something similar in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, which says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So the persecution of the righteous is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that will fall on those who persecute the righteous here on earth. The passage says that God considers it just to repay them according to what they have done. So what Thessalonians and the passage of Philippians are saying is that persecution of God's people is not just a sign of judgment, but it is an omen upon the persecutors of God's church. The pastor in Puritan Matthew Henry once said that those who oppose the gospel of Christ are marked out for ruin. So the persecution of God's people functions in two ways, or has two different functions. One, it gives evidence to the righteous judgment of God that will come upon the persecutors of God's church. And secondly, the persecution of God's people also functions as a sign of their salvation. In other words, it's a mark of their heavenly citizenship. Let's go back to verse 29 of Philippians 1. Let me just just read that slowly. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you. Let's pause there. Granted, as in given or gifted. Right? People, we all like to be gifted something. We ought to be given something. I like that. That sounds really good. For it has been granted to you and I that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. Yes. Ephesians says that faith is a gift. Faith has been given to you. You have been gifted with 
the faith to believe in Jesus Christ and everything that comes with that faith in Christ. Salvation from your sins, spared from the judgment of God, the Holy Spirit as the seal of your salvation and helper through your time of need. You've been given eternal life with the Lord Jesus to live with him forever and ever and all these wonderful things as the scriptures describe to us that we receive in Jesus Christ. That is what you receive. But he continues, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. I admit to you, I don't like that part. I don't think any of us would. I don't want that. I don't want the suffering. I'd rather have the, the, the first half of that passage. Lord, can you just keep the rest? But in granted both. Why? Why do we have to have both? The New Testament teaches us that faith and suffering go hand in hand. Suffering is always included with faith, but why? Remember the passage we read in 2 Thessalonians. Trials and suffering is evidence of the, evidence of the judgment of God so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of Christ. That is, it's not about our earning to be citizens of that heavenly kingdom, but rather suffering is for the proving of what we say we believe. It is to show that you are indeed a citizen of the kingdom of heaven you continue to stand and strive to the end. And there are many other reasons why you and I are granted with trials and sufferings. And let me just, let me just call them out to you. I won't read the actual passages, but I'll just, referencing, I'll just reference them. This is important because, if it, if it, again, this is not a gift that we particularly want. It's like playing Yankee swap, and then you get your number and you pick up the gift, and oh, I got a box of suffering. Uh, I'll exchange you for the box of joy. But this is important. You're giving faith and giving suffering. But there's wonderful things that also come should you suffer for the gospel. Romans 5 1 through 5 and 8 17 says that suffering leads to glory. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that you have been gifted or granted suffering so that you may also share in the comforts of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.9, the Apostle Paul himself says that he shares in the suffering so that he may not only share in the death of Christ, but he may also share in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, the passage we just read, says that is to show forth your citizenship 1 Peter 3.14 says that you are gifted or granted suffering so that you also may be blessed. Luke 22.28 also tells us that you are granted trials and suffering so that you may also be rewarded. James 1.2 tells us that it is for your perfecting. John Calvin says, For persecutions are in a manner seals of adoption to the children of God, if they endure them with fortitude and patience. The wicked give token of their condemnation because they stumble against a stone by which they shall be bruised to pieces. Oh, if this persuasion were effectually inwrought in our minds, 
that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of piety. And yet what is more certain than that it is the highest honor that is conferred upon us by divine grace, that we suffer for his name, either reproach or imprisonment or miseries or tortures or even death. For in that case, he adorns us with his marks of distinction. Whatever trials you face on account of your Christian faith, it is to show those marks of distinction that you indeed are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that you're no longer a citizen of this world. It is to show forth your citizenship. I don't know if that's encouraging enough to you or I have no idea. Hopefully you found those other rewards that we receive even through suffering. I, I, it's encouraging. But if you're not encouraged enough, hopefully you'll find this encouraging. Back to this passage, verse 29. Again, it says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. Who's the one who's doing the granting? The obvious answer is God. God is the one who's doing the granting. He's the one who's doing the gifting which means that if God is the one who grants you the trials, he's also the one who's in control of it. So God doesn't, whether it, it's this implication not only for suffering or persecution or trials on account of the faith, but just any trials that you may face for just being human and living in this world. God, in other words, doesn't just say, here's a trial and say, okay, let's see how this is going to work out. Let's see, let's see how this is going to work out. I have no idea what's going to happen, but we're going to find out. But it's not like that at all. God is sovereign. If he's the one who inserted or introduced that trial in your life, he's also the one who's in control of it. He's also the one who can take it away. He's the one who is using it for your purposes and for your good, or for his purposes and your good. The one who grants it is the one who is in control of it. So then let me take us back to the beginning of the passage and conclude with this. Again, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So be worthy. That's the main imperative that governs this entire section. Be worthy, again, is not an effort to try to earn our salvation. That's a direct contradiction to justification by faith alone and Christ alone as it's taught to us in the Scriptures. But the idea is that this is the working out of our salvation that we already have. Paul's main point here is that no matter what happens, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? And Paul will go, on, will go on to the rest of the letter to clarify what that means. But to sum it all up, to live a life man, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, abounding in love, with discernment and knowledge. It is standing side by side with one another, standing firm in the gospel, eager to maintain unity with God's people. Paul will go on to say in the rest of his letter, it is imitating the life of Paul, who is also imitating the life of Christ. 
to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to patiently endure suffering. Here's an interesting one. Paul will also say that to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to do all things without grumbling. Do you grumble? I certainly grumble all the time. If you say you don't grumble, you're a liar. All these ways is a manner that we live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're called to show ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven by living in this way. Right? You're no longer a citizen of this world. When you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, those papers that prove that you are a part of this world were torn up. You received the Holy Spirit of God who is the seal of your adoption, who is proof that you are now an adopted son or daughter of God, that you belong to the citizenship of heaven. You're no longer identified with this world. So then you and I are called to live out our faith, standing with one another, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And should we suffer for the, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the scriptures promise us that the sufferings we endure in this life are only preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The kind of picture that Paul is painting for us is not of a walk in the park, but it's more like a battle, a wrestling match. I mean, look at the words he uses and it's just in this passage, standing, striving, not frightened, opponent, engaged in conflict. But if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you've come to the conclusion that the battle is worth it. Because what comes after the battle is worth it. If you're here this morning, you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't follow the Lord, you may have heard all this and come to the conclusion that the Christian life is hard. And it is hard. And your life may already be difficult enough. You may be enduring a hard season of suffering for whatever reason, and you're coming to the conclusion perhaps that living a Christian makes my life even harder and I don't want it. But I will tell you this, that the things that you're enduring right now in this life ultimately will be for nothing. For us who believe, for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we endure, we strive, we persevere because we have come to the conclusion that having Christ is enough and because the rewards that we receive in the end far outweigh the trials that we have to endure in this life. That our trials are for something, are for a purpose. Believe in the gospel of Christ, that Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, died a brutal death on a cross, so that if anybody who believes in Jesus will be spared of the judgment of God, will receive forgiveness of sins, will receive eternal life with God and with Christ. And your trials in this life will not be for nothing. What's more is that you will receive the Holy Spirit who will help you in your trials. And what's more is that you will receive brothers and sisters who are more than eager to walk with you, standing side by side with you to help in those trials. That's ultimately what we aim to do. Together live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Standing together, striving side by side. And may the Lord give us the grace, the strength, the conviction, 
and the care to live in that way. Let's pray. Lord, we Lord, we desperately need you. We need you to abide with us. We need you to fill us with your spirit. We need you to encourage us. Lord, we thank you that you are always with your church, that you have not left us, but you have promised that you would be with us even to the end of the age. What's more is that you have also given us a family. Lord, may we work hard together to maintain the unity that you have so sacrificed for in the giving of your Son. May we count this unity as precious. May we be eager to protect it. Help us. And we pray, God, that as we continue to strive, that no matter what we endure, that you may grace us with your comfort, that you may reward us for our patient endurance, and that you may increase our joy in Christ. Through all of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.